Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfound. While we continue again today, our new Christmas series, The Word Became Flesh. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, as Dr. Newfound brings us a message entitled, A Light Shining in the Darkness. Christmas, I'm doing a study of the first chapter of John, so let me read verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. You know, those of us who live in the Northern Hemisphere celebrate Christmas at the very darkest time of the year. And where I live, the sun is up for only about eight hours a day at Christmas, and it remains low on the horizon, and it's usually cloudy, and it gives an additional dark feeling. A number of people who struggle with SAD, or SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder, often complain of depression and feelings of general malaise at this time of the year. It's gloomy where I live. And that's one of the reasons why Christmas is so welcomed at this time of the year. I mean, people string lights on their homes, and and there is in the gathering gloom these signs of celebration in which light and warmth seem to offset the cold and the dark. But even so, none of this offsets the fact that it is dark. The gloom remains. You know, in some ways, we might see in the darkness a metaphor for human existence. The human race is in darkness. And in one sense, that means we are in ignorance. We haven't known the God who created us or how to get on with him. And so we're in darkness about both our creator and about who we are as his creation. It's darkness. But in the Gospel of John, the themes of light and darkness, which are often recounted, mean something just a bit different than that. See, for instance, in John 3, a rabbi named Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night when it's dark. And as John later reflects on that incident, listen to what he says in John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. So notice the themes. People who do evil things love the darkness, for, for darkness is a symbol of secrecy. People love to hide. They love the idea that they will never be exposed. Darkness is their protection. Darkness is their friend. For as long as darkness exists, they are protected, and they're free to act out any evil they wish. Now, that might sound satisfying. I mean, after all, we've all got our secrets, and who wants to have their secrets exposed? So so on the one hand, darkness seems to help people sense safety, and so they welcome it. But darkness has a built-in weakness. Let me move forward to John chapter 11, verses 9 to 10, and here Jesus is speaking. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. See, that theme gets repeated in John 12, 35, and there Jesus says, the one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. So if we put these verses together, we might say darkness is the cloak of protection that allows evil men and women to do their deeds. But in consequence of living in darkness, they never know when it is that disaster will overtake them, and so they live in perpetual uncertainty and in fear. And furthermore, they're directionless. 
having no sense of purpose, for it takes light to allow them to see where they're going. And this is the metaphor for the cultures of this world. Self-willed men and women do what they need to do to get what they want. But they live with uncertainty, hoping that their deeds will never be exposed, and the tragedy is all around them. So men and women stumble on a pathway that leads nowhere. The good, and I suppose the bad news, is that the coming of Jesus represents light in a battle with darkness, and in the end, the darkness is forced to retreat, and the light ultimately triumphs. <laughs> Does that sound hard to believe? You know, it can seem a stretch, because after all, darkness seems to be advancing in our world. You know, mass shootings, terrorism, dictatorial regimes around the world, morals being attacked everywhere, people justifying narcissism and selfishness, a lack of concern for others, greed, materialism, all the varieties of sexual uncleanness. Well, it seems like darkness has no fear of the light at all. And Christmas, which celebrates light coming into the world, is, is also a time for materialism in many the crowded malls, we buy, 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 sometimes even racking up credit card debt and making our own lives miserable. It seems like, well, darkness. We really have no idea where we're going. You know, yesterday I began by examining those earth-shattering words that begin the Gospel of John. When John wants to tell the story of the birth of Jesus, he begins with the very same words that begin our Bible in the beginning. But instead of saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which is how the Bible begins, he says, in the beginning was the word. For John knows that this is how the world began. God simply spoke, and, and his word caused the universe to spring into existence. And so says John, it is correct to say, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Now, the original Greek says the word was toward God. Now, I want you to imagine one of those old sappy movies where there are, you know, two lovers and they're running towards each other. It's slow motion. It's on a beach. Now, when we see that, we know that the desire of the two is for each other. And John says the same thing. The father is turned toward his word. His desire is for his word, and the word is turned toward the father. And then most obviously, John adds, this is because the word was God. That is, you can never make a distinction between God and the word that he speaks. They are one and the same. Now, we know that eventually John will say that the word of God became flesh. We know that eventually John will identify the word of God with Jesus and the event of Christmas. And that's why Peter, when he writes to Christians, says, and I'm reading 2 Peter 1 verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. So I hope you see that Peter has no difficulty in calling Jesus both his Savior and his God. Now, I know that there are those who want to mistranslate John 1 verse 1, and they'll translate it by saying that the word was a God, but that really is nonsense. John's not telling us that when God spoke, he created a separate deity, another God. No, no. He will tell us that when we speak of Jesus, we are saying that on the one hand, he is oriented towards God and therefore is distinct from the Father, but he is also the one God at the same time. And eventually that mystery is explained in the biblical teachings of the Trinity, that the one true God eternally exists as three distinct persons. But this is not the time to get an in-depth study on the Trinity. But I do raise this issue 
Because I remember some time ago while I was pastoring, a woman came to the church in which I was pastoring, and it was, it was Christmas Eve. And she came out of that service utterly stunned. She thought what they were doing in there, they were actually worshiping Jesus. That's exactly right. Jesus is a prophet, but he's not just a prophet or merely a good moral teacher or a healer or a, or a worker of miracles, a man who many admire. Indeed, the very mark of Christian worship is that we worship Jesus. We think he's God. We think God entered into the human race. We think that God died on a cross and bore our sins. We think that we know God because he has made himself known and come to us clothed in human flesh. And once we realize that, it changes everything. We begin to reverence Jesus. We pray to him. We submit to him. We sacrifice everything to him. We love him more than life itself, for he is our God. And, and just in case you missed it, this is what the Christian faith is all about. But let's go further. Look again at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. See, John states this both positively and negatively. Positively, he says, he made everything. And negatively, he says, if it is a created thing, it was created by him. Nothing in the created order came into being without him. It's so important to say this. In the early church, there arose a debate about the person of Jesus. And one man, he was a teacher named Arius, and he argued that Jesus was created by the Father and then... Through Jesus, the Father creates everything else. That can't be true. According to verse 3, everything that was ever created or everything that belongs in the category of created things have their origin in him. He made everything that was made. And don't you see it? If Jesus was created, then according to verse 3, he had to have created himself. And of course, that's a logical absurdity to say that he created himself. And so we are left with only one alternative. He, that is the Word, that is Jesus himself, is uncreated. He doesn't fit into the category of a created thing. That's why the birth of Jesus is not the beginning of Jesus. The child in the manger is before all things, and he is the explanation of all things. Well, we're drawing close to the last call to join us on board the Freedom of the Seas this February 3rd to the 11th for our 60th anniversary Celebration Caribbean Cruise. Join Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway from Laugh Again, Isaac Dagno from In Doubt, and special friends and musical guests Shane and Angela Weeb for a nine-day adventure taking in all the wonderful sights and sounds of the Caribbean while enjoying exceptional opportunities for worship, fellowship, laughter, and digging deep into God's Word. Don't miss out. Call today. We'd love to see you there. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page online at backtothebible.ca. And please remember that this trip or any of our Back to the Bible Canada vacation events are paid for solely by the participants, and the ministry gifts from friends across Canada are never used for this purpose. There are still many of us who are uncertain about what Christmas actually means, and, and that's because we're uncertain about the identity of the child that lies in the manger. 
And I hear people say, you know, you believe in Jesus and I believe in something or someone else. And all that's good, they say, just as long as you believe something and that something gives you meaning in your life. So please hear me. Belief in and of itself is not necessarily good or bad. It all depends on what you believe, not that you believe. Everyone believes in something. Nobody believes in nothing. We all have a belief system. Adolf Hitler believed in the supremacy of the German race. He believed in something, but there is nothing virtuous about simply believing. It all depends on what it is that you believe. I recently remember reading about a cult, and they believed that they were created by aliens from another planet, and these aliens were called, they said, the Elohim from the Hebrew word for God. And it's, it's fascinating, as well as completely ludicrous. When we speak of believing in Jesus, we're, we're not speaking about our personal belief system that, that gives us meaning. We're speaking of him who created all things. And if that's right, it means that Jesus is the final authority on all matters, that his word ends the discussion. Don't make this your private belief. This is either truth or this is falsehood. You know, John, who watched Jesus heal the sick and walk on water and raise the dead, uh, the man who witnessed this said, this is the creator. All of nature is at his beck and call. That's what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus. And then to verse 4. In him was life. Now, I might say that about me. In me is life. But that wouldn't mean anything more than to say that I'm alive. I'm not dead. But my and your life is different from his life. Our life is dependent life. My life and yours depends on a number of factors. I must keep breathing and have a a good supply of oxygen to have life. I must eat. I must avoid disease. I must be clothed and have lodging. My life is dependent life, and it's always hanging by a dangerous thread. And those of you who have had death in your family just know how fragile life is. But in Jesus is life, and, and by that, John means independent life, or what theologians often call non contingent life. Life that does not depend on anything, but life that exists of its own. It's it's an indestructible life. It's life that makes all other life possible. But then John goes on. His life was the light of men. That's to say, whatever life we have is a reflection of him. His life is intended to be the pattern in which we live. So let me explain. I was in my second year of university studying psychology at the University of Saskatchewan. I was taking a class in abnormal psychology. It's the the study of mental illness. And I'll never forget the opening lecture. The professor presented us with a number of theories of mental wellness, mental health. And with each theory, he, he showed us its problem. Some theories of mental health are entirely culturally conditioned. Some theories were based on incorrect assumptions and, and some on poor science and an incomplete understanding of human complexity. And he ended the lecture by saying, so you see, those of us in the mental health field have a great deal of difficulty describing what mental health actually looks like. We're like, he said, we're like doctors who want to set a broken leg, but we we can't actually agree on what a healthy leg looks like. But then he said that in all of his studies, he had found only one consistent theory of mental health. And he went to the board and he wrote in large letters in a secular university, he wrote down Christ-likeness. And he spent the rest of that class telling us that Jesus was the only picture he knew of of what normal life was to look like. 
See, I later found out, that, yeah, he was a Christian. He was a worshiper of Jesus who, who not only believed that Jesus was God, but that he was perfect, ideal man. This is what real, ideal life looks like. That's what John says. If you want to know what life was to look like, you have to look at Jesus. His life was intended as the model human life. His life is the only way we can ever achieve satisfaction and health and authentic living. His life is the only light that men and women have. See, I want you to think of how much time we spend looking for happiness and fulfillment and a sense of purpose. We probably spend the first 20 years of our lives learning from parents and school and friends about what will be important to us. And so we make decisions in the first part of our lives about what we will pursue and how we're going to live. And then we'll spend the next 20 to 30 years living out these principles and and finding out what we have lived for has has really failed to satisfy. And, And then finally, every human being comes to the same conclusion. Life's disappointing. And then we do one of three things. We either redouble our efforts to live out the same or we'll fall into despair or we'll change our minds about what's important. And the problem is we're lacking light for we don't know what life is about. We're stumbling along in the dark and we we don't know where we're going. You know, somebody recently told me that marriage is like flies on a windowpane. Those on the outside want in and those on the inside want out. You know, it turns out that being married or single simply doesn't satisfy. Money doesn't satisfy. Sex doesn't satisfy. Entertainment doesn't satisfy. Education doesn't satisfy. Philosophy certainly doesn't satisfy. Traveling doesn't satisfy. Consumerism is empty. You know, it turns out that Jesus' life is the only light that men have. I'm speaking here to Christians and non-Christians. For Christians, some of you have believed but have never lived in his light. Some of you have followed a pattern given by your parents or your friends, but your life is not lived in the light. You're stumbling in the darkness, for they were stumbling in the darkness before you. But Jesus is the only source of the world's light. This is the heart of the Christian message. Jesus is not only the creator of this earth, he is the one who shed light on what creation is for or what our lives are for. Now on to verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, the present world is characterized by moral and spiritual darkness. But let me make that more personal. Our own personal lives are characterized by spiritual darkness. The tragedy is, and this is what John says, the darkness has not understood the light. That's because darkness can't understand Jesus. And and that's the funny thing about Jesus. John, when wanting to tell us about what he saw when he saw Jesus, took us to the beginning. But when the Pharisees saw Jesus, well, they saw him only as an upstart teacher from Nazareth, and they cast abuse on him. Who can't see the sun when it rises? And the answer is, well, blind people can't see it. And there's the problem. We're all blind people. We're living in the darkness. We have not understood the light when it came to us. You know, if you use an NIV Bible, you're going to see a little footnote at the bottom of the page referring to verse 5. It will state that an alternative reading for verse 5 goes like this. The darkness has not overcome it. And it turns out that this is also a legitimate way of reading this passage. See, John chooses words here that that really can be translated in two different ways. Either the darkness has not understood it or the darkness has not overcome it. 
You know, one Greek scholar called this a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. In other words, John wants us to read both meanings into the text. The darkness simply didn't understand the light, and indeed the darkness was incapable of defeating the light. So imagine a pitch black room that's full of people. They've been there for many years and have grown quite accustomed to the darkness. And one day, someone comes in with a candle. and The light shatters the darkness and it flees against it. And the people in the room cry out because the strength of the candle is so blinding it hurts their eyes. Darkness, however, cannot keep back the light. And the light shines in spite of the objections that are raised to it. And the book of John is the story of verse 5. The first 12 chapters tell us of the light that has begun to shine. It's the book of signs and miracles of the teaching of Jesus. And the second half of the book is the attempt to the darkness to overcome the light. It tells the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, but the darkness could not overcome him. Jesus rose from the dead and his light shines so much brighter. Darkness simply is no match for this one. And every once in a while, I'll hear someone complain about the darkness or the evil in this world. And I'll respond by saying, yes, there is so much darkness. But I have also to say, have you noticed that the light has begun to shine? Jesus, the creator, has entered into a dark and rebellious world. And this light will continue to shine. Indeed, the darkness will be unable to hold this back. Well, that's because of who he is. And because he is God, he simply can't be extinguished. This light is shining in a dark, dark world. And yet, the light is ever so bright. Open your eyes and see. John, thanks for your message today. Just a quick question. And it might seem obvious, but you know, with so much light that Christ has brought into the world, why are we so absorbed with the darkness? Yeah, I, I hear Christians talking about this all the time. It's almost as if, you know, we're, we're speaking as real Christians. If we notice how bad stuff is getting, you know, and government, and wow, did you hear what was happening now on the airwaves? And, you know, I mean, we have a, a list of things that are all happening, which tell us that, you know, there's no hope. Let's, you know, let's just... Let's just uh, launch ourselves into deep despair. You know, the good news at Christmas is this news, that in a dark world, and let's not fool ourselves, the world is dark, but in this dark world, a great light has begun to shine. I mean, could we talk about that? Could we talk about how we are noticing that more people are hearing the gospel of Jesus all the time? Thanks so much, John. And join us again tomorrow for more of our Christmas special right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Two thousand and seventeen has been an incredible year of ministry. New ministries launched like Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld discussing current events, questions of life and faith, and the Bible. Back to the Bible Kids, now thousands of children engaging with the Bible and memorizing Scripture. A new radio initiative just launched in India, broadcasting the Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld to millions across India, the Middle East, and China. Just a few new initiatives that multiply the impact of the daily Bible teaching program of our young adult ministry in doubt and laugh again. 
As we celebrate the Christmas season, we're praying people like you from across Canada will step forward and support these ministries with a generous gift toward our year-end ministry goal of $400,000. These funds are critical as we move into a new year. Would you call with your year-end gift today at 1-800-663-2425 or give online at backtothebible.ca.